Hello and welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we watch a VHS tape or two or three. Quite a bit has happened since we last recorded. Yes. Um, World War Three almost started. Yeah, we are... Uh, There's we are, a global pandemic. Yes. Uh, pretty unthinkable when we last uh, checked in with our dear listeners, but Lindsay and I are sheltering in home right now with our bird and our cat and the new addition to the family our dog Bo. hopefully you don't hear him yeah hopefully you don't hear some bark barking in the background other than getting a dog there was another good thing that happened while we've been on hiatus yes um last time that you heard from us i was raising money for my feature red snow not only did we make our budget but the movie's in the can uh, we already filmed it in Lake Tahoe. And it's the best possible time for Sean to be in post-production. That's what people keep telling me, is just our timing was weirdly perfect. Both, I mean, mainly in terms of, like, the second we got back. It, we got back on, like, March 12th. And then the Bay Area counties all announced that weekend that they wanted people to stay home. Yeah, it was it was really weird because um, during the shoot, I was in Tahoe for about three weeks for the movie, And during that time, I was kind of in a little bit of a bubble. I mean, mostly because I was working on the movie, but I would get like little news updates and things and it would get more and more serious. I would tell you how freaked out my coworkers were. But we were just so isolated from it. And it was it wasn't really real until we got back. I think it was while you were shooting that people started canceling flights and trips. But yeah, um, I hope. All our listeners are are staying safe and healthy during this kind of insane time. And if we can offer you a little bit of a distraction, a little bit of uh, entertainment, then all the better. Part of the reason it took us a little while to get this episode in the can is because we had not one, not two, but three Home Alone movies to watch. And And and, rewatch. And rewatch and analyze and dissect. Um, so we've got quite a bit to talk about. Yeah, I'm not going to watch another Home Alone movie for a while. We did really wear out the exploits of old Kevin McAllister and Alex Pruitt, who can forget the protagonist of Home Alone 3, who we will also be talking about. It's part of the trilogy, folks. You it's, can't <laughs> you can't cut it out. It's weird because it's a trilogy where... They don't all belong. Like, these are all mm-hmm. not connected films. Yet, they were all written by John Hughes. So there is an overarching auteur theory. And the director of the third one is is the editor of the first two. But it's bizarre. Okay, we should talk well, about Yeah, the there's movies, a lot but... to talk about. You know, we have to talk about John Hughes, of course, who... Sure. Coming off a string of hits in the 80s, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and... Yep. Uh, Pretty in Pink, etc. He signed a deal with Fox to make five movies, three that, of which, oh, really? three of which were these Home Alone films. Interesting, because I know that um, we watched uh, that series on Netflix, like uh, the making of the movies you love or whatever that covered right. Home Alone and Die Hard. So we'll try not to parrot too much of that information. But one thing that I found interesting is that it was a Warner Brothers, oh, right, a Warner Brothers movie, and then. Like, they went slightly over budget in pre-production and put it in turnaround and instantly Fox scooped it up, which, is, which you know, was a decision that probably cost 
Warner Brothers like a billion dollars by not doing Home Alone. I mean, seriously, they really yeah. made a mistake. But who knows if they would have enabled it to be the film that it is if they yeah. were that sensitive to it going over budget. Yeah, um, it, but it's pretty incredible to watch that episode on Home Alone. Um, I had no idea that this enormous house, the McAllister residence, is mm-hmm. a set. I always assumed it was a real house, but I mean, it makes total sense yeah. that they would use a set. I mean, only the interiors you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the the exterior, yeah, the exteriors are real. Yeah, I didn't think about it on this watch, but that famous like red house logo that's at the beginning of all three of these movies. Well, it's blue in the film. Oh yeah, it's red on the cover and blue in the film. Yeah. Okay, I, I thought I was going crazy for a second. It's uh, It doesn't resemble the house at all. No, these it, first two movies. It doesn't, actually. It's kind of weird. It's, it's like a like, very modest home, whereas the McAllister house is a mansion. It truly, it looks like a super rich person's house. But I mean, that that's true of many movies. Many movies show these massive classic homes. And it's like, what do these people do for a living that they could afford to live in this house, in this neighborhood? But uh, the first one is about our, our boy, Macaulay Culkin, plays Kevin McAllister, who uh, is picked on by his enormous family. Uh, His family is going on a trip to, in the first one, it's to Paris. Yes. I get all of these mixed up in my head because we've watched them back to back, which is not the way to watch these movies. No. Yeah, it's essentially a big crowd of relatives, not just his siblings, but his cousins and aunts and uncles are all crammed into their massive house for this uh, trip to Paris to visit there i i guess his i think it's his uncle his father's brother who has two homes one in new york and one in paris there's a phantom presence in these first two movies yeah, you never meet him it's his brother's or his uncle's place that is featured in the end of two as well that yes. is the big booby trap house yes very convenient this uh this uncle i love the setup of the uh first home alone movie and we're gonna talk about it after we talk about these ads on the front of the tape i finally got some ads uh on some tapes and uh we'll get through them really quickly because there's a ton of ads on all of these but just three on this first one we kick it off with Fern Gully. a tape head's favorite not really well it was on the show <laughs> it was uh, on the yeah. show um, you know, Robin Williams, uh, in a pre-Genie voice performance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for more on our Ferngully thoughts, I think you'll have to go back to that episode. But, um, tellingly, it, it said, coming to theaters this Thanksgiving on the ad. Yeah. And then after that, we have two just straight up commercials for their corporate sponsors. One for American Airlines. Yes. Who is proud to partner with Fox for the video cassette release of Home Alone. Yes. And their slogan, at least at that time, was something special is in the air. Not Christmas, a plane. And, you know, of all their corporate sponsors, and there are many in this in this franchise, it's a pretty commercial uh, endeavor, that this, this series of films. American Airlines is the only one that stuck with them for all three. 
Yeah, that's an yeah. interesting one. Which and it doesn't yeah. always make them look good. In the second one, it doesn't look Oh, good. yeah, they look like trash in the second one. <laughs> I mean, if American Airlines had been a little more on top of it, this never would have happened. Yeah. But as you said, what were you saying? It's like in a pre-9-11 time. Yeah, it's a pre-9-11 time where airplanes were kind of like buses. If you got on the wrong airplane, no one's going to be that freaked out about it. Whereas now, if you get on the wrong airplane, people are going to con- be convinced that you have a bomb. Which brings us to our third ad, which is another sponsor, Pepsi, featured so prominently at the beginning of the first Home Alone. Yeah. And this ad is so funny because it's these two, like, cute kids sitting next to each other, and they're basically going, what makes you cool is your attitude. It's not the way your hair is cut, okay? It's not the clothes you wear. And they're going through this litany of things. And then they're like, it's not what you drink. And there's a reveal that one is drinking Coke and the other is drinking Pepsi. And this girl cozies up next to the one drinking Pepsi. And this kid looks at camera and is basically like, disregard everything I just said. Yeah. Be, you'll, be, uh, you'll be judged by the value of your beverage. And then it says Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. Yeah. But at least Pepsi's making it so it doesn't matter what you ha- what you wear or what your hair looks like. Which side of the soda wars did did your family fall on? Were you a Coke family or a Pepsi family? Uh, we just got whatever. Yeah, that's we, kind of how we were too. But I yeah. feel like we were more of a Coke family. We never got Shasta Cola or RC Cola. We always got like the bigger name brand sodas. Because the Pepsi versus Coke thing is a big thing in these first two movies because, as we'll get to it, in Home Alone 2, they switch to Coke. Yeah. And it's it almost feels like a middle finger right at Pepsi. I will say, I think I still feel this way a little bit. I don't really know the difference between Coke and Pepsi. I still see them as just a darker cola drink. Hmm. I think of Pepsi as being kind of like sickly sweet in a way that, well, I, mean, I guess they both kind of are, but in, a, in more but, so than but Coke. Pepsi is what comes with your $1.50 hot dog at Costco. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's funny. My dad uh, organized a blind taste testing of all the different colas uh, when I was a kid. Did I, I tell have... you about that? This? Have I talked about this on the show? You didn't, but now I understand why we did the blind beer tasting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was like all the all the usual suspects. It was Pepsi, Coke, RC Cola, and then like A plus, like all the different uh A plus is like the Albertsons brand. Oh, I'd never heard and, of A plus. And the knockoffs one. Like the I think A plus from Albertsons was the Whoa. number one choice. So I would be down for a blind cola tasting. Yeah, that but kind of I fun. think you know, and it's funny because it's entirely like psychological. But we didn't yeah. continue to get like the the knockoffs even after it won the contest. We were still like, okay, well, this data is great and all, but we still want Coke. You know, yeah, my we mom want the name brand. It's funny because my mom tried to restrict soda consumption in our house and it didn't work because my dad liked soda too much. So he would just go buy soda. <laughs> so there was usually soda, but I, I didn't drink that much and I still don't drink it much now. It's more of like a couple, like a couple times a year treat or something. I almost feel like beer replaced soda for me because yeah. I almost feel like my entire life I've just needed compulsively to be cracking open 12 ounce cans of things. <laughs> And there really was a moment in my life around college where it just, I stopped drinking soda altogether, but that was also the time in which I started drinking beer. Interesting. And then there's the sparkling water LaCroix, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. 
that fever. Uh, I will point out that on our VHS tape, there's two intact proof of purchases. One On one side, it's Pepsi, and on the other side, it's American Airlines. Oh, wow. You're right. Yeah, on the cover. And on the Home Alone... Hold on. We're just discovering this. And tellingly, <laughs> on the Home Alone 2 VHS, there's just the American Airlines. What do you think happened with Pepsi? <laughs> I think they had. How did some they drop of, the ball on the second one? I have no idea. I just maybe Pepsi decided they didn't need it, but that's why Coke has taken over. Yeah. So right off the bat, this just iconic John Williams score, and what I said to you is like this feels like Harry Potter, which this is Chris Columbus and John Williams, the duo that would form the Harry Potter. Yeah. Kind of like the aesthetic for the movies with Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. But didn't you feel that more with the second one, especially in like the toy store and stuff? Not as yeah, much in the first Yeah, I mean, one. it's an aesthetic that I think carries through the first two. And also in, I don't even know if it's a John Williams score, but if you go back and watch Young Sherlock Holmes, which is a Chris Columbus movie, yeah. that has Harry Potter like all over it. I think there's something about that that tie between the music and then this sort of childish wonderment you know when especially in the first one when he's wandering around town by himself trying to kind of be independent Mm -hmm. figure things out for himself and he wanders into the church just all of those moments kind of I, i can see where the vibe would jive maybe more with harry potter than something else and just to parrot one more thing from that behind the scenes uh thing that we watched on netflix um they talked about like what a big difference the john williams score made like it elevated it from this kind of low budget thing that mostly takes place in a house to feeling really epic and big Mm -hmm. and like this really is one of the great john williams scores that kind of gets unsung amidst Mm -hmm. like jaws and jurassic park and star wars uh but it's like such an iconic and like evokes christmas and all these different things it's really darling and delightful. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of whimsy in it. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the things that you really loved as a filmmaker, and I also just really enjoy in general, is how in the opening of the movie you get to explore his relationship with his family, and they kind of set up why he gets abandoned. But they also set up the whole layout of the house so that when later when he's fighting off the bandits, you kind of have a feeling for where he's going and how how the different places connect and what was in those rooms that he's using against them oh yeah spatial geography it's a wonderful thing we we get so well acquainted with this house it just makes it all the more amazing that it's it is a set because it feels i mean you know you pointed out like the red walls and just like how red the house is like the way that, yeah, that it's just aggressively decorated, which is a little bit early 90s, but then yeah. also I think this sort of heightened reality of ex- being extra Christmassy. The house is such a huge part of this first movie and the I guess the beginning of the second one. But um, the intro does such a good job of like economically introducing us to like this huge, crazy family. They treat him like garbage, too. Yeah, they and do. Maybe he's a little annoying, but he's also an eight year old. Right. Well, and Buzz and, is a monster. And like, he's, yeah, he's like a, he's a he's a typical picky kid. He wants to have cheese pizza. You'd think they would have ordered a bunch of cheese pizza because there's so many kids there. And then when he goes to try and get cheese pizza. It's all gone, and it's it almost feels like Buzz ate more cheese pizza just to mm-hmm. get rid of it, so that uh, so that Kevin couldn't have it. 
Another thing that's established right off the bat is Joe Pesci. Is we he's posing as a cop, which I even as a kid I thought was super brazen mm-hmm. for the villain to just be traipsing around in a police uniform. Checking in, I guess kind of like scoping out the the each house before he robs them. And so yeah, a lot of a lot of ground is covered just in, in this opening. Mm-hmm. And I, I never feel like it drags the way the opening of two does. Yeah. But um, what was it? They there's an altercation over the pizza and the soda in the kitchen with but between Buzz and Kevin, and Kevin ends up spilling milk when he jumps at Buzz. Look what whole, you did, you little jerk! Which is his uncle, his cheap uncle that mm-hmm. they build on into the second movie. But everyone turns on Kevin. There's no question that Buzz could have been at fault at all. It's just all kevin's fault and he has to you know there's this argument does he have to sleep with the bedwetter fuller yeah you know he'd rather sleep in the attic by him in the spooky attic by himself and Mm -hmm. then that's how he ends up essentially abandoned because he's up in the attic alone and then the whole family is going to be late to go to the airport they also establish what becomes a staple for this series the creepy older person who's not as creepy as they seem the uh snow shoveling man who buzz tries to is it buzz or one of his cousins that tries to convince him he's like a serial killer i think it's buzz yeah between buzz and his sister are both trying to egg him on by Mm. the window i thought yeah um but anyway like you kind of feel like yeah if you were in this kid's situation it would be pretty great to rid yourself of this family yeah and he's kind of excited about it once he realizes he's all alone he thinks that he made a wish and it came true and he just wished his family away which is a little dark actually it's like you know because he's essentially believing they don't really exist anymore which in hindsight it makes sense that he doesn't reach out for help or to try to contact them at all if he's just under this assumption that they just don't exist which i think i think lends to that sense of he's this little adult that's really intelligent and kind of figures his way around he does the he's responsible and is doing the grocery shopping he's cleaning up he's doing laundry all this stuff but then he's also childish and naive and i think that they do a pretty good job in the first one more so than the second one of like explaining how exactly this happened like that random neighborhood kid being part of the head count when they're in the shuttles and just when you have like so many people, I could kind of buy and like for some reason the parents are in first class, I guess because they're like, who knows what they do that they have this mansion and are they could pay for all of these pla- plane tickets for the ki- for their kids and then put themselves in first class. I mean, I, I want to know what they do for a living. Yeah, I wonder if that's ever mentioned. And then, you know, we get a lot of good montages of Kevin just enjoying life without them. Um... I think that it's explained pretty well why he's avoiding like when the cop comes by to check and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I just have to say like with Macaulay Culkin for like a kid to carry this movie on his shoulders is pretty impressive. Yeah, his performance is great. Um, I guess he was cast straight out of Uncle Buck, one of your favorite movies. <laughs> And there's another kind of throwback to Uncle Buck where uh, John Candy appears in this movie in a role that's kind of a more polished version of his Uncle Buck character a little bit. 
Apparently John Candy filmed for like 24 hours straight because he only was going to give him one day. So they just milked it. He basically did it as a favor for John Hughes. Yeah, it sounded like they didn't really, they couldn't fit him into the budget really. So he was just kind of like, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you sort of under the table. And then it turned into a nightmare of a long day. You got John Hurd and Catherine O'Hara as the most negligent parents in the world. They really suck at being parents. And then, you know, it's kind of excusable in the first one, but it's totally inexcusable. For it to happen twice and then for them to be kind of like joking in the second movie about how horrible of parents they are is pretty incredible. But I feel like when people talk about Home Alone, they mostly think of those burglars played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern and all those booby traps. Yeah. Booby traps that would have killed real people. More so with each progressive sequel. I feel yeah. I find actually 2 to be the most kind of cutthroat and I mean we'll get to it but like they'd be super dead if any of those things happened to them. It yeah. gets definitely more cartoony with each movie. In this one I at least can suspend my disbelief a little bit like with a paint can hitting a head and that sort of thing. Right. Um, in two, he actually throws bricks on their heads. Yeah. Five or so stories up. Multiple times. They all hit Daniel Stern, and the first one would have killed him. Yeah. <laughs> Just dead. And he sets them on fire. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I'd want to kill this kid, too, if I was them. I mean, they're they're just trying to, you know, provide for themselves, the, the wet bandits. Um, it is pretty messed up that... I guess it's mostly Marv that's responsible for plugging the faucets and yeah causing massive uh home damage is their trademark yeah because he thinks that they need to have a trademark but they're just idiots yeah i mean they're just really really dumb bandits and i feel like in pop culture um this whole idea of having improvised booby traps in your third act has become like oh you're pulling a home alone like Mm -hmm. a lot of people said that's what skyfall did when that came out oh really yeah because i mean that's kind of what the third act of skyfall is but as the resident horror fan, I'd like to point out that Nightmare on Elm Street did it first. In oh. that movie, when she pulls Freddy out of the dream um, in, her, in the third act of that movie, she's rigged up the house with like a bunch of Home Alone type. And that was 84. So it's like so six years before. What you're saying is Home Alone is based on Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, basically. Okay. Yeah. What did you think about Kevin's relationship with the old man? Because he has a lot of different scares with him where he keeps thinking like, oh, he's a serial killer. He's out to get me. But then there's that sweet scene at the church. Yeah, essentially at the church, Kevin's kind of lonely and realizing that he's going to be alone for Christmas. And he does actually miss his family. So he regrets that they don't exist anymore. He talks with this elderly gentleman that he's been terrified of and the gentleman shares this story that he's at the church listening to this choir sing because it's the only way he can see his granddaughter because he's had a falling out with his son. But there's really no detail about it. He's just sort of motivating Kevin to want to reunite with his family. But somehow it kind of spurs Kevin into all of this action around destroying the bandits, which is what happens in the second film too. Yeah, for some reason, whenever old people talk to Kevin... They're trying to impart all these sweet life lessons about, like, leading a good life. And all he hears is, like, build traps, kill burglars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sort of gets the lesson and then just immediately goes for violence. Mm-hmm. 
And he, uh, in both uh, one and two, he gets assistance from this elderly person uh, and from animals. There's an animal thing running through all three of these movies. In this one, yeah. it's a tarantula that gives a, an assist at the end there. It's Buzz's tarantula. And the second one, it's pigeons. Yeah. And the third one, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a rat and a <laughs> parrot. <laughs> we have a lot win. to talk about with the third one. There's a lot to unpack with the third one. Um, so I think we should probably start to wrap up this one. I mean, you know, it's home alone you've seen it there's a lot of crazy traps joe pesci gets his head set on fire um, joe pesci wanted to say the f word the entire time and was apparently saying it a lot so they have a lot of outtakes with him swearing at the storm and he apparently he built this whole language where he's like like he's kind of like non-swearing for a lot of the movie yeah i feel like he had to do because he was fresh off goodfellas so uh, he had to sort of build his own non-swearing language I think I think the most bizarre thing in this movie is that Kevin does all this stuff with the bandits. The old man saves him in this flooded house when the bandits are about to go after him and are trying to hurt him and gets the cops to come and all that stuff and then just drops him off at his house by himself still and has no idea when his parents are going to be coming back. What do you think he said to the old man? Like, hey, so just between you and me, I'd like to not involve my parents with this or not tell the cops. Because as far as the cops know, they got an anonymous tip from somebody named Murphy. Yeah, which was Kevin. Like yeah. Kevin Kevin set it up so that the bandits would, would get caught. You would think that but... they would the cops the cops are terrible in all of these yeah. movies, but especially in in this first one because you'd think you'd go across the street and be like, "Hey, do you did you hear any of this insane stuff that was going on?" See, so yeah, so Kevin ends up getting zero credit for catching these bandits and having them go to jail. And he just spends yeah. the whole time cleaning up his own house so that his parents have no idea what's happened. Mm -hmm. And he does a pretty good job, although he forgets to clean up Buzz's room, which he destroyed and, and robbed him. Yeah, and he robbed Buzz. All of his grocery trips and stuff were with, Bo uh, with Buzz's money. Oh, another great piece of trivia that I learned is the photo of Buzz's girlfriend, that great line where he's like looking through Buzz's what stuff. What Where he's like, Buzz, your girlfriend, woof. <laughs> that is a boy dressed up as a girl because they didn't, they thought it would be mean. This is how nice these filmmakers are. This is yeah. how nice Chris Columbus and John Hughes are. Is they, they didn't want to offend a real-life girl, so they had one of like the crew members' kids like, dress up in a wig. Because if you think about it, if, that, if they'd used an actual child actress and a ton of people saw this movie, at, people, at, at school, people would have been saying woof to her. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, huge box office hit, $476 million worldwide against an $18 million budget. So insane. an insane amount of money. Um, I'm sure people at Warner Brothers got fired over missing out on that gravy train. Yeah. Um, apparently it was in theaters forever. And of course, that would lead us to a sequel. Gotta cash in on it. Oh, yeah. So should we go over to Home Alone 2? Yeah, what were your ads? Okay, so we got three again. And again, it's like two commercials just straight up for... Actually, all three of them are for just products. Um, my memory was that there was an ad for the Talk Boy 
that like like the device that they're like pushing in the movie but there wasn't no i could have sworn that was at the front of this tape maybe that was like a later release or something but first you get home alone christmas that's a christmas album that uh is available on audio cassette and compact disc what's crazy is they advertise the soundtrack for the first one on the on the back of the vhs cover and it says soundtrack available on record cassette and compact disc so even with the first film they were still releasing them on records do you think between 90 and 92 they just stopped releasing on lp or or did they just stop speaking to that i I don't know but um in any event i kind of remember this ad i mean they're pushing basically all of the Christmas songs that you... It's not even the John Williams score. It's just like Christmas music that's in the first two movies. Yeah. Including Kevin's solo at the Christmas pageant at the beginning of Home Alone 2. Which you hate. I hate that. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that after the next ad. Um, American Airlines basically runs the same exact ad that they had yeah. in the first... Again, something special is in the air, whatever it is. Uh... And they, they, it's like the same copy, even. They're like, American Airlines is proud to be partnering with Home Alone 2 for their video release. And it was just an ad that you would have seen on TV. And it's just footage of, like, the most traumatic part of Kevin's uh, experience, when his family is just running away from yeah. him at the airport. And it's then... like, no, I'm not going to fly American. They, they blew it for this kid twice. And then he had a Quaker Oat Cinnamon Life cereal ad. Yeah. Just because. Yeah. I, I, I was even looking for that cereal in the movie, but I didn't see it. So let's let's talk about Home Alone 2. Is, did you grow up with both of these? And I forget. You, you actually grew up with all three of these on VHS. And you'd watch. You were saying that you'd watch three the most. We watched three the most. Or I watched three the most. But I was also raised on action movies and martial arts movies and stuff. So I feel like that was the one that probably synced with that aspect of my yeah. youth. Because 3 is sort of an espionage. We were saying that it's actually kind of, it has some diehard beats in it. More yeah. than Home Alone beats. But I, I, we definitely watched all three. And I loved the first one a lot too. The second one was not as memorable for me. Except for Tim Curry for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Oh, well, Tim Curry's the best part of the second one. That's true. For sure. So I, my take on the second one, I'm sure I liked it when I was younger. I'm trying really hard to, to like it. But I think my problem with it is it's almost as if Chris Columbus and John Hughes don't know why people liked the first movie. So they're like, okay, let's do everything the same. It's the same recipe, but you changed out a couple of ingredients. Essentially. Yeah, but it's almost like they didn't know which staples to kind of hit again. Mm. So they just did all of them. So like every single beat, like you have the kindly old person who at first he's afraid of. You have him get a buzz getting him into trouble at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You have them missing the alarm. Like every single beat is a is just a yeah. with the exception of the hotel sequence, which I think is when the movie is at its strongest. The hotel stuff is really fun. Yeah, because at least those are like slightly new ideas. But even then, it's like they bring back this, uh, you know, kind of James Cagney type 
uh, movie that they created. I think that's kind of a cute callback, though. I think some. I think I see some of it as a little bit of a cute callback. I think if you if it was just a few of those things, I would think of them as callbacks. But it's just like such a yeah. clone. Because like because in the in sort of that final action sequence when he's fighting the bandits, he throws paint cans at them on a staircase, and they're kind of like, "Ha ha! You're not gonna get us this time. We know that one." And then he hits them with something else because that was sort of like a a uh, sort of a misdirection i also find that the tone of this one is a little bit meaner a little bit nastier like the things that happen to the now sticky bandits i mean every single one would be a kill like as opposed yeah. to last time where this, there's a little room for disbelief but this time it's like just brick to the head set them on fire and it's like played more cartoonish you, which is a little jarring too you lose some of the innocence from the first one yeah that softens it and yeah you're right it's it's definitely more violent for sure the just setting it in new york isn't enough of a twist like i was trying to put myself in john hughes's shoes and be like okay you you have this movie that like super overperformed. it's this huge hit how do you write a sequel to it and honestly like i think what i would come up with would be closer to three because three <laughs> what, I, what i appreciate about three it's not a good movie but it's not it's, it's definitely not. but we're gonna get into it later but three at least makes a conscious effort to zig where the first one zagged like at every opportunity like it's like okay let's take the basic idea where a kid is stuck at home and has to defend his home from robbers whereas the second one all it does is transports well, it to new york it's not defend your home from robbers it's defend your home from foreign espionage terrorists yeah whatever see like even that like it yeah. was it, i appreciate the third one for trying to to mix things up and okay. trying to be original yeah. whereas the second one it's just like Ugh. it's like it annoys me how much like our generation kind of lumps the two together it's like oh i love home alone and home alone too and I feel like people are just thinking about Tim Curry as the the cantankerous uh, hotel manager and Rob Schneider as his like loyal bellhop. Like all that stuff is good. The robber stuff doesn't play as well in the second one. Yeah, I mean, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern just coincidentally like through Kismet are just in New York, like on the same block as yeah. Kevin while all this is happening. I feel like there could have been an opportunity to explore the hotel stuff more and eliminate the robber element. Yeah, and, and like it takes a lot for me to say that because the hotel stuff was shot at a Trump hotel and Donald Trump makes a cameo, yeah. but it, which is awful and like part of, you know, Hollywood kind of enabling Donald Trump to make this totally false perception that he was a big success which led to him being our president so yeah. but i i can still admit that that's like the best segment of the movie is at, yeah. when he's at the hotel for sure like that's when it's really like firing on all cylinders and kind of feels like it's a proper sequel and not just a remake right. i think one criticism that you had of this that i didn't totally agree with uh and we mentioned this a little bit earlier was how easy it is for him to get on the wrong plane because it's such a different world pre nine eleven, he he's like running after this guy that looks like his dad is dressed all the same way who boards this plane to New York. He doesn't know that it's a plane to New York. He's just rushing after this guy he thinks is his dad. He knocks into the flight attendant that's been t accepting the tickets, and she drops all the tickets on the floor. And he drop and I think he drops his ticket at the same time. 
So he's just insisting, my dad's on here, my dad's on here. So she says, okay, fine. Because it's at a time where, you know, an airplane is essentially an airbus. It's not, you don't really overthink that, you know, you have to have that ticket to get on. She's just going with the flow that, well, this kid needs to get to his dad. Yeah, I mean, that stuff I don't mind as much because I appreciate that they're taking efforts to kind of mix it up and kind of playing on our expectations. Because I imagine if you go into a theater, well, I mean, I guess it's sort of given away in the subtitle, Lost in New York, but I kind of feel like your expectation is like, oh, how is he going to get stuck at home again? But, you know, it's, oh, he he got to the airport. Like, I'm kind of with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's kind of like the moment um, all the fun hotel stuff is done it like really starts to drag and this is a two-hour movie so it's kind of like they repeat every beat from the first movie yeah kind of minus and everyone's a little bit you know has a little bit less wind in their sails like everyone's kind of going through the motions they're still good like john hurd and Catherine o'hara are still good joe pesci daniel stern are still good but it's just kind of like we've done all this before and maybe that's why the hotel stuff at least feels like a little more, you know, it's a little Fine. fresher just mm-hmm. because you have Tim Curry and like you have some of those kind of lovable beats with him, like those line readings. You have like the dissolve from the Grinch smiling to him smiling. Right. Like I love all that stuff, but I feel like that's what people think about when they think of this movie. Yeah. But there's a whole like other hour of this movie. I think another opportunity would have been because they build this wondrous toy store that looks amazing. They kind of set up all of this wonderment within and that kind of has that sort of childhood innocence to it that in that toy store and his experience there and he wants to fight the robbers because he finds out they're they're planning to rob the toy store but then you'd think that the a lot of the action would have taken place at the store but they actually move it down to his uncle's house in new york that's getting renovated which i guess gives him tools and some time to set up but it's it's one of those things where I wonder if they hadn't moved it to a home and had kept it had kept some of that in the toy store if that would have played a a little bit better I think that that's also part of kind of the nastier edge of this movie is like when it's in the um the uncle's house it's dark because there's no electricity so it's kind of like they're just going into this like really like dank and dark kind of you know dingy building instead of like the really colorful and fun houses uh i mean i will house of the first one and then um well and the third moves it into daytime so i think that that sort of solves this problem too but um the whole i think the worst sequence of this movie is when he's torturing the burglars which is a solid like 45 minutes of the movie it feels like yeah maybe maybe it's just like maybe it's less but it's probably less also given that you have to sort of suspend your disbelief that one, the now sticky bandits are in New York at the same time Kevin is. Two, he, they like tell him his their whole plan for his robbing this toy store. And three, that when he like takes a Polaroid picture of them robbing it and throws the brick through the window, he assumes that they'll just chase him to his like booby trapped house. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're the the bandits, why do you do that? Like, is it just well, a personal vendetta? Because they just drop all the money and then but chase him. They're also really stupid. That yeah. was well established in the first movie. Mm-hmm. So that I can kind of go with. 
And then like they'd be off scot free if they're just if they just shrugged, like packed up their money and just left. The best part of the movie is when they get attacked by the pigeons from the crazy pigeon lady. <laughs> yeah. Also, like they've tried to raise the stakes by giving them a gun. And at first, I think he's just bluffing, like, oh, I've got a gun, I'm going to shoot you. A lot of the movie is just them trying to lead this kid into a park to shoot him. Which is really weird. It happens weird. multiple times. Which is really weird and dark. Yeah. And, and that's where some of his violence, I mean, they were saying they were going to kill him. And it's like, I, I love dark, violent movies, but I don't like to mix that with my Your family sweet comedy. Christmas family comedy, you know? But it's just like... And the pigeon lady... I'm sorry. The pigeon lady is awful. I do not like the pigeon lady. She's strangely, she's British for some reason. All the stuff where they go to the symphony together, like you could cut all of that and this yeah. would be a better movie. It's also interesting to me because they set in New York and they take pains to make the background, the, the characters, or not the characters, but the extras in the background diverse but then there's still not really diversity in the cast at all there's one black cop who Catherine o'hara like you know kind of like has this tete-a-tete with about if if your child is missing wouldn't you be trying to look for him that sort yeah. of thing but i have been really hard on this movie yeah, I was gonna that say, I, you're harder on it than i thought you would be i i i'm i think i'm more just annoyed by it okay because i mean it is like it is a lot of the things that I like about the first one. It's just like I I'm annoyed when a sequel is this lazy. I think it I think that's the problem of watching them back to back. Yeah. You really have to watch like one one year and one the next year. Because I remember us watching two just by itself one Christmas. Yeah. And me totally enjoying it. I but I think watching them back to back makes this one suffer and actually improves three. <laughs> Which we'll, we'll get into. <laughs> Um, but like treating this as if it's like the Godfather part two and like on the same level as the first one, I think is crazy. But like a lot of people feel yeah, that way about but it. You have to view it independently of the first one. Like you can still enjoy both if you view them far enough apart. I don't know. I mean, like imagine if Die Hard 2 had John McClane just in a different building doing the exact same thing, having the same conversations with characters. But only like a third of the movie is him doing the same thing. I think it's much more than that. Because like even, even little things like the family is again watching It's a Wonderful Life in another language. Again, fooling people with this same movie or a sequel to this movie, which yeah. is kind of a meta thing. And it's just like, once you start to notice all these things, it's like every single scene is a rehash of a scene from the previous movie. You haven't mentioned his uh, recorder, though. Yeah, he has a little talk boy that he records things on and plays them back. But that is really just a twist of him using the VHS tape from the first one. Like, even that yeah. is like not a fully formed original idea, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he does use it to make it sound like his dad is in the shower based on the recording of his uncle and the shower. I do in enjoy shower, the inflatable clown. Which is a pretty cute touch. But again, that falls into the hotel mm -hmm. parts of the movie. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say, but I, uh, uh, as I was watching the movie, is there's this scene where, like, Tim Curry has this great bit where he's like, he has to say, I love you, because that's what the VHS tape uh, gangster film, Angels with Filthier Souls, is telling him to do. And he kind of does this soldier crawl away, 
where he's like, there's an insane guest with a gun. And I was thinking like, man, the moment Tim Curry crawls off frame is kind of where the movie sort of dies for me a little Aww. bit. But he comes back. He, he has a little bit more to do later. Yeah. But even like the last beat of the movie, it when they get the hotel bill for $967... Again, it's someone yelling at Kevin from off screen. Really, the only thing that they don't rehash is the famous, like, him putting aftershave on his face and screaming. Which is surprising. Yeah, I mean, because that's on the cover of the first movie. Like, that's Mm -hmm. such an iconic thing. Um, They do replicate that a little bit in Home Alone 3. Yeah, yeah. But I'm amazed that they're able to restrain themselves there when they repeated every other story beat from the first movie. (laughs) But yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sure that a lot of people like this is their favorite one in the series. So let's say I, some nice things. I still like it. Like I, I think, I think my only issue with it is this particular watch where we watch them literally one after another, which I do not think is the way to view these films because I don't think that's the way they were intended to be viewed anyway. I think independently viewed, they're both really fun. So this one was also a big hit. Um, not quite as big as the first one financially, but uh, $365 million worldwide. Nothing to sneeze at. It's a lot of money. A lot of money, especially in uh, early 90s dollars. And then there was kind of a gap where Macaulay Culkin, I guess he retired from acting. What, was some of the, what were some of the tidbits you found out about? Because between, I guess, 92 and 97. Yeah, so there had been intent... Uh, there, there was some intention to film uh, Home Alone 2 and 3 kind of back-to-back, but then they ended up deciding prioritizing 2, and then it sort of went away for a little while. They tried to get him, Macaulay Culkin, back, but he was retired. They tried to get uh, Fuller, um, Karen Culkin, to star in it, but he wasn't up for it. And so, and then the robbers, the actors who played the robbers, did not want to come back. So they decided to just, let's do something completely different, entirely new cast, new story, and we got Home Alone 3 out of it in 1997. Okay, really fast, because there are 10 ads on this VHS tape. Yeah, and we do not need to talk about all of these. And surprisingly, no American Airlines commercials here. It's a lot of Fox... TV and video games, weirdly. You, there's been like a big cultural shift between the early 90s and late 90s with these ads. Yeah. We get uh, an ad for the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle. Which I enjoyed as a kid. I remember liking it. I haven't seen it since theaters. I liked the books, but they were racist. <laughs> uh, then we get an, an ad for the X-Files movie, which I remember... When I saw it, I was like, man, I wish I'd seen more of the series because I feel out of my depth. <laughs> because it's very, like, heavy on the mythology. Yeah. Um, but I remember that being pretty good. Were you an X-Files kid? Yeah, I was a big fan of the X-Files. Especially their one-off kind of sidetrack episodes on other things. Yeah, they did another movie, at least one more movie, that was more of like a Monster of the Week type thing. But I remember this being very rooted in all of their... Mm-hmm. Like the arc that they are building throughout the show. Yeah. Then we just get our third ad, just an ad for Home Alone 1 and 2 on VHS. Oh, yeah. We get an ad for The Morph Files, which is a claymation thing I have no relation to. No. 
uh, Shirley Temple montage. They have a sing and dance along video. This is where it's just like, oh, this is hellish. Like, I would start fast forwarding the ads at this point. I remember when I was a kid, Shirley, they re-released all the Shirley Temple movies. You could get them on black and, in black and white or colorized. And uh, my friend and I were really into it in first grade. We would watch her movies. <laughs> Sorry for saying I was in hell watching it. Yeah, you know, well, I wasn't in hell. <laughs> uh virtual connects uh, apparently that's a video game based on toys oh like, yeah sort of, were they like tinker toy type things or was it more connects were kind of cool because you could make more advanced stuff like some of them would be motorized i remember we had like a robot thing my mom had gotten it from my brother but he wasn't into it so then i took it over it was one of those like gendered toys where she had just gotten it for me in the first place because i was into all the mechanized stuff Aww. um but th- it was like very much of this time where it was, you build it up and it's this robot and it was remote controlled and I was able to power it down the hallway and stuff. I did not have a video game. Um, another video game, Croc for PlayStation, where you're a hearing, crocodile. I remember hearing about that, but I don't think we played it. We played Crash Bandicoot. This kind of looked like Crash Bandicoot, but with like shittier graphics. Yeah um then uh the fox kids lineup of like bobby's world ultimate goosebumps eerie indiana which i thought was an earlier show but maybe they're just showing reruns of probably the fox family channel which i forgot all about which is crazy because i looked it up because i was thinking when when did this exist it existed for a couple of years and then it got sold to disney who turned it into abc family and it was just used to show reruns of different Mary-Kate and Ashley and other TV shows that they had. Whose line is it anyway? And then the last one, a really scrape in the bottom of the barrel. I feel like Fox is just jamming as much stuff at the front of this tape because this movie did not do well, unlike the other two. So I feel like on their flops, they just view it as like, well, let's cut our losses and just jam as many ads as we can out of the tape because this is for In the Zone. Do you remember this? Mm-mm. It was a baseball show for the Fox generation okay. where it's just like a precursor to like all the worst like ESPN talking heads type things. Um, it was just basically like, let's talk baseball, but we're going to be super gross. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk home alone three okay, where do it even begin well with the opening so it opens with the logo it yeah. has the score yeah it, it has feels like home alone okay we're getting a home alone movie and then bam you're in hong kong yeah and the score changes and, and it starts to get kind of actiony like the score sounds like something from an action flick that, yeah it's, that, you know it's a, a steven seagal or somebody would have been in it's a pretty like bold opening because they don't have a the other two movies have more of a full opening credit sequence where they don't really have titles on screen at the beginning of the movie it's kind of this they have this whole yeah. animated thing this it's like they start to tease that with a magnifying glass, like, traveling over several houses and landing yeah. on one. But, yeah, the smash cut to Hong Kong, I was like, whoa, where is this movie going? And it's crazy because it opens with all these adults. You don't meet the kids until later. So mm-hmm. it starts with these adults talking about this super special microchip that's going to help them 
what is what does the chip even do? It's got special data on it. It's it's unclear. It's I think it has something to do with like it belongs to the Air Force or somebody. It's I think it's like missile guiding and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's essentially stolen military tech. And it they're trying to get uh, they're trying to kind of pass it through these airports. It's being taken by these sort of like terrorist agents who are all white people. They're like kind of a couple of them are sort of Euro trash. Yeah. Um, I like that. I mean, this is like the first thing that's like clearly like right off the bat. It's like they're making an effort to make it different. There's four bad guys now and they're one like, of them is a woman oh yeah the first one of them is bad a woman. guy woman because yeah. women can be she's, evil too she's kind of a mia jovovich type yeah. one of them looks like the lead singer from crash test dummies brad <laughs> roberts uh one of them has sort of an alan coming vibe it's clear like you know i and, and they're supposed to be kind of smart and sophisticated yeah these aren't the dumb dumb bandits of the first two movies these guys are high tech they've got special palm pilots and hidden cameras that can send <laughs> pictures that they take of license places plates to their palm pilot and so they're trying to they put this chip into a kid's motorized little race car like a little remote control car yeah a remote control little car and it's hidden in there for them to be able to get it through airport the airport and through customs and stuff. She's just pretending that it's a toy for her son at home or something. Cut to Silicon Valley, California. Dun, dun, dun. Um, it's funny, this handoff where I guess the guy who works for the microchip company hands off the microchip. I was thinking in, in any other action movie, like in a movie, you can tell it's for kids because usually the cliche in this scene is right after he hands off the chip for all the money, they just shoot the guy. Usually he should with, be dead. Usually with like a silenced pistol or his car blows up or something just to like cut off that yeah. loose end. But here they just kind of drive off and yeah, you it was a so, fine transaction. You were so confused that he didn't die and that it was just totally polite and nice. And so this is where they they pick it up in Silicon Valley and then they fly from SFO to Chicago and it's... Well, that, that, that's the, the switcheroo happens in SFO. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So when they get to SFO, that's when it gets mixed up with... They have the same Parisian bag as an older lady and this older lady's bag um just has bread in it it's like sourdough bread yeah theirs has the car with the microchip and so they get flipped at the uh the the essentially the security area and they don't realize this until they get to chicago and then they have to track down where the hell that car went well, I think they even figure out that she's going to Chicago. Like yes. they're so competent that they're able to figure out like he's like staring at the flight yeah. information. They interrogate people uh to find they, they interrogate like a taxi cab driver who's able to give them the neighborhood that she lives in and so they yeah. go into this neighborhood. He narrows neighborhood. it down pretty far. He says it's the only driveway that wasn't shoveled. It's an old Tudor house with the Christmas tree in the driveway. Yeah. Except the only house that wasn't shoveled, but Alex, our protagonist, shovels that driveway. So they can't tell by the time they get to the neighborhood. So like already like a much different movie. All yeah. and all of our familiar characters are gone. 
I, I mentioned that John Hughes wrote the script, but John Williams is not back. It's a totally different kind of score, um, except for that one sample at the beginning. Yeah, not classic at all. All modern, action-y kind of stuff. And so essentially, yeah, we get through a big chunk of that beginning of the movie with no kids in it. And then suddenly we meet Alex, who's itchy and is kind of, he's not scared. I will say, you said that there's a uh, scary older person in each movie. He's not scared of her. She's just mean to him. Yeah, I, I and that's what I appreciate. And again, is like, you norm, if this was from the same team, well, it is, is sorry, it's from the same team, but I feel like... In the other movies, they would have wedged in another character who would yeah. have been this scary kind of deus ex machina character. Yeah. But essentially, she doesn't think he did a great job of shoveling the uh, driveway. She doesn't really want to pay him much, so she just gives him this car that she discovered in her baggage that she doesn't want anyway. She's like, well, you can take this. So he's like, well, fine. But Which, at this point in the movie, I'm like... This is a pretty good plot. <laughs> I'm like, this is a pretty smart way to get this remote control to this yeah. kid. They do set up that he's not very well liked by his family. Mm -hmm. They think that he's a baby. They make fun of him. Well, who plays his sister? Scarlett Johansson. That blew my mind. I had forgotten <laughs> that little baby Scar Joe is in this movie. I guess we gotta start dumping on Home Alone 3 at some point. Because uh, it deserves some It dumping. deserves it. I... It is trying to be very, very different, but like right off the bat, something I noticed about the humor in this one is say what you will about those first two Home Alones, but they are classy. Like I feel like <laughs> there's there's like a classiness about it. I mean, as classy as you can be when you're like torturing these uh these bad guys, but. The humor in this is a little more scatological. It's a little grosser. It's they a little a raunchier. Joke. They make a joke about him closing the toilet seat on his penis over and yeah, over again. Apparently. Over and over again. Like when the when Alex screams when he realizes that he has chicken pox all over his body, they just keep repeating this line where it's like Oh, Alex slammed the toilet seat down on his thing again. And we were trying to figure out logistically how you could do that. Basically, like, how well endowed is this child for well, this to keep happening? Well, and why is he holding it? He's holding it over the rim of the toilet and then keeping it there and leaning into the toilet. He would right? have to be, like, on his knees over it like i don't i don't understand well, no the he's a tiny child like he wouldn't have to be on his knees yeah i guess not he's very short he's not as tall as you are but they do mean standing up though right yeah, yeah. i think they mean standing up but he must have been leaning into the toilet and then closed the lid without stepping away from the toilet just one of the many beguiling mysteries of this movie how a child would slam the toilet onto as the movie says his thing um, we also meet his brother who has a supernaturally smart parrot. Yeah, they establish that both siblings, Scarjo and the brother, I don't even Let's remember. Let's just call him Buzz Light because Buzz I, don't, Light I don't catch his name. Are kind of crappy kids. Like mm -hmm. she's, she's quote unquote studying for a test by writing the answers on the bottom of her shoe. And then he's just hanging out in his room with uh, scantily clad bikini photos all around him crushing bugs 
Yeah, this parrot is like a genius. I mean, it doesn't just like parrot things that yeah. it's heard. It's having conversations with people. But Alex is also a super genius and yes. is an inventor himself, which is their kind of, their way of setting up how he could possibly fight back against these super intelligent foreign espionage terrorist cell people. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, like, this movie, just as much as the second one felt like a clone of the first one, this felt like John Hughes writing it really felt like he was making a conscious effort to be like, I'm going to address every criticism that people had at the first two movies and, like, really try and make it different because I feel like I never had this problem with the first movie. I just kind of went with it. But how is it that Kevin is so gifted making these traps when we saw really no evidence of that before? Whereas in this movie, yeah. it, asta- it it definitely does a better job of showing that he makes all these Rube Goldberg-esque things. He's like an inventor. He's kind of a weirdo. You know, mm-hmm. like he he just is gifted in this way. Right, yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, it, it's it's good writing. And he loves animals. He has a rat. He has he a has, rat, yeah. Uh, he has fish. He has bugs. He has a bug that's smashed by his his awful brother at the beginning. He seems to have a deeper connection with the parrot than his brother. Mm-hmm. He he has a big thing that he keeps slamming the toilet seat. Um, this actor you went to college with. Uh, but oh, we're I sort of burying the lead here. Well, no, but I didn't know him. I looked him up on Wikipedia and realized that he was at Cal at the same time that I was. And it's possible that I saw him perform improv because he was on an improv team where I had gone to some of the shows. Alex D. Linz doesn't act anymore, but he had quite a run there. Yeah. This wasn't his only credit. He did a bunch of things. Yeah, Max Keebler, I think, is the other thing he's really known for. And he's pretty good. Like, he, he definitely feels younger. I mean, he's yeah. playing an eight-year-old, and they cast an eight-year-old. Yeah, he was an actual eight-year-old playing an eight-year-old, which is a little unusual. Uh, Macaulay Culkin was 10 when he was playing an eight-year-old in Home Alone. And those are a big two years from eight to ten. And... I, you know, it's funny because when he first shows up, I was very skeptical. I was you, like... You kept saying, he's bad. He's bad. Well, I mean, I, hold on. I I mean, <laughs> I was worried that we had another Jake Lloyd in Jingle All the Way situation oh, on our hands. He was but the worst. I think, you know, wisely, this character is not written to be annoying or bratty in any way. Yes. And as Alex had more screen time, I started to disassociate from kevin yeah not compare him to kevin as much like it's a very different character it's a totally different character i think that's the thing where if you watch three you you almost have to pretend that it's not a home alone movie yeah and it's it's really not it's not set at christmas i mean they again like this is sort of the thing where it's like he's not really home alone all the way because he's home with the chicken pox yeah his and it's like during the week it's in january it's just that he mm -hmm. lives in the suburbs and nobody's there yeah his dad's on a work trip his mom is at work and his two siblings are at school so he they're just gone for the day they haven't totally abandoned him 
I you know that's that's one area where they try and make things different. All the action happens during the daytime, unlike all the the night set action yeah. of the first two. And the bad guys even comment on it because one of them says, "Should we be doing this during the day?" And uh, the other guy says, "Oh, this is the essentially this is the suburbs. You have to do it during the day because no yeah. one will think anything of it if you're out during the day." Yeah. Well, and also everyone, uh, all the working people are gone during the week, and yeah. I think that's also why they didn't set it during Christmas, like you mentioned right um i love how the the bad guys basically just rent a house in the neighborhood because they're like we're gonna take our time with this and really figure it out and figure out which house has the car they're so sophisticated too they tap into the phone line they've got all this monitoring set up but then alex is too because he sets up cameras to watch them in the backyard all of this stuff, I'm really dubious of his ability to set up some of those physical traps. Like he has a has these this massive weight set up on the roof of the house, which I don't even know if he'd be able to lift the bar, let alone the weights on the bar. Yeah, I, I think that somehow the traps are even more elaborate than the second movie. Yeah, you, you kind of don't, I, I think it's a, it's a bigger leap to believe in the traps in this film. What's crazy about the kind of the second act of this movie is it becomes rear window. Yeah. <laughs> like it like it starts off I mean like it no there there's no part of this movie that really feels like the first home alone like cuz it's like it's it starts off as kind of this weird Steven like, Seagal yeah, sort, sort of direct movie. to video action movie then it turns into rear window and then the third act is die hard. Yeah. And it's like at no point does it really feel like 100% trying to be part of this franchise which i appreciate about it it's genuinely i had before reading about the background of it i would have sworn that they bought up a script that was having a hard time getting sold and they just put the home alone title on it and you know added in you know added in kim who was stuck at the house yeah i would not have thought this was actually written to be a part of this franchise Again, trying to kind of like right the wrongs of the previous movie. Like a lot of people try and kind of undo the home, the earlier Home Alone movies by saying, oh, well, if he had just called the cops, he wouldn't have had to improvise all these traps. Right. He's basically just saving the insurance company's money by, by fixing it himself. Uh-huh. But in this, he tries to call the cops and it turns into this boy who cried wolf type thing where it's like the cops keep coming but the thieves are so cunning, they get away. And so they just think, oh, this kid's desperate for attention. Yep. He's making it up. So he kind of has no other option but to do it this way. Yeah. Uh, very gadget-focused movie. Extremely gadget-focused. Um, uses uh, the remote control car with the camera on it. Uh, all the, the bad guys have lots of gadgets. They tap into the phone line and, like, basically gaslight the parents and make them think that uh like they they're trying to find the whereabouts of the remote control car by posing as people what i think what i found weird about this movie and this is not related to what you're talking about but i keep thinking about it is his absent father like the mom is essentially doing all the parenting and even when he's on a work trip she doesn't think at all to call him or say anything to him he's just totally uninvolved and the dad is the dad from Smart House. The dad is the dad from Smart House, yeah. yes. What is also interesting about this movie, it's, I'm, I keep, it's funny because I have the opposite problem with two, 
Where it's like, I'm trying to think of bad things to say about it because it's not a good movie. I know that. It genuinely is not very good. I can't help but continue to admire it because another thing that I appreciate about it (laughs) is that it's not that these are dumb thieves. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's more interesting to me to have super intelligent thieves, but the kid is just better. You know, like it's for like very like well paid, I imagine very expertly trained people against one kid who's just like a savant and is just brilliant yeah and that just i don't know that's an interesting dynamic rather rather than just again having two big Mm dum-dums keep falling into traps over and over again it's kind of like it's their hubris that brings them down right i think i think the interesting thing too is with this movie the acting is pretty good the you can tell they put a lot of money into it. It's pretty well thought out. Some of the way they shot things, you know, they have a scene toward the end with the biggest of the bad, three bad guys, where he's really intimidating and you can kind of see it's this sort of fearful moment and it's a sympathetic moment because the elderly woman, they have been just freezing her and uh, making her suffer for having given away their chip and they're using her to sort of bait the kid out of the house to attack him and that was handled pretty well but i think part of what cheapen there are two things that really cheapen this and make it where it's not very good the music is not very effective it's no john williams yeah that's for sure. it, and it just sounds kind of cheap and then some of the the gags you know there's you know, some of the gags just don't play as well as yeah. the ones in the first two movies i mean again like j- dumping poop on a bad guy is just never funny to me like yeah. it's like it's it feels a lot grosser this time around if the it's second like, one he, was meaner he, yeah. and more violent the third one just goes for like the basest humor it's like what what would a young boy find funny yeah. rather than thinking just what's funny it, it yeah it's it's definitely like it it cheapens it in a big way and i was amazed to find out that this has a bigger budget than two had and was not successful because two feels the biggest to me right. just because it's in new york it's a painting on a huge canvas i think a lot of people forget that this was in theaters it, it's it's it only almost... four and five that were either direct to video or cable which yeah. i haven't even seen and i think there's there's something else with the the artistry of this one where they had a different approach because it doesn't feel theatrical it feels like it could have been direct to video and i don't know if it's the daytime setting how they lit it how they styled it i just am not really sure but it just they didn't hit the mark to make this feel like a really big theatrical film yeah it's the same cinematographer i almost wonder if i don't know if maybe like the film stock wasn't as good in the late 90s as the early 90s i don't know there's something about it does definitely feel cheaper and i imagine losing chris columbus who's like a major talent and definitely kind of helps you know shape the look of the movie in a huge way i think that that's definitely missing here too that losing that house from the first one like that we the, choosing to have it in more of a it's still like a big house but it's not like a huge mansion for him to like be playing in yeah it's kind of a actual more typical seeming house from the inside which again i think was an effort to make things different but it it definitely does cheapen it a little bit too yeah but speaking of the music uh there is a song in this movie oh yeah that i think we need to talk a little bit about because uh 
the name of the song is My Town by Cartoon Boyfriend. If you haven't heard of Cartoon Boyfriend, they are almost impossible to find out anything about on the internet. They came out with one album called Nipples, where it has all three band members uh, naked riding a bicycle. It's a very disturbing cover. It doesn't feature this song. Yeah, so this song was done for the movie. Maybe we could play a little snippet of it here. You know, in the movie, I could have sworn, like, there's a part where it sounds like, if you're ready to see hell. And they kept saying it, they and kept we were saying laughing it like, so hard, because we were like, is that actually what they're saying? Yeah, because the lyrics kind of match up with the movie, where it's like, the boy is singing the song to the burglars, where it's like, this is my town, this is my home, and yeah, you can come and try and traipse, and if you're ready to see hell. And we, he does present them with Yeah, him. but so I went down this YouTube rabbit hole, where basically what I found out is that the only place where this version of the song exists is in the movie because they censored it for the soundtrack because they changed it to like, uh, and if you're ready, well, like apparently hell was just too spicy of a word to have on the soundtrack. And yet it's in the movie. Yeah. In the movie twice, they play it during the film and then during the credits afterwards. I can't tell if I like this song or if it's really obnoxious and I just have like, uh, I have Stockholm Syndrome. I've heard it so many times in, in, uh, just trying to figure out what the deal is with this song. (laughs) The thing that John loved the most though. Okay, so I finally tracked down on YouTube, I believe if you look up uh, My Town, cartoon boyfriend explicit the explicit version has the word hell in it someone has painstakingly taken the audio from the end credits of the movie and stitched it on to the album version so you can hear the unadulterated song but eight years ago no start with the four years because that's what you saw first there's a youtube (laughs) i can't believe that we're gonna go down a rabbit hole of talking about youtube comments but this makes me realize that there's a subculture of move of people out there that I think are a little bit younger than us. I I might I believe who love Home Alone three. Yeah, and I get it. I get it. Like there there are things to like about Home Alone three, but there is a comment on. <laughs> Can we even get through this part? So we we scrolled down just to see what people were saying about this. And like, what do what do people think about this song? Yeah. Because I wanted to find like minded people who are like, right. what is the deal with this song? Why can I not find out anything about Cartoon Boyfriend or why this version of the song is impossible to find? And uh, YouTube user Daniel Lee says in all caps, mind you, I still prefer Home Alone three than the others. Alex is nicer than Kevin, and the bad guys ended up seeing hell. And this is from four years ago. This is from four years ago. And and so Sean's ready to leave the page, but I scroll down and I realize that the same guy left another comment. (laughs) With a different account. With a different account four years before that. So eight years ago. So eight years ago, he came by and left two different comments. Did you want to read these? Yeah, I'll read these. But he he came by, left two different comments, and then came back four years later with his new account. And we could tell it was the same guy because of the way he wrote. And both accounts had Daniel Lee in the name. But in his eight-year-old comment, he said in all caps, this was a great message to the four bad guys. If you're ready to see hell, they did say hell, though. 
And then in his second comment eight years ago, he said, God, I found the song in which they sing if you're ready to see hell. Like in the movie, Home Alone 3 is the best among all Home Alones. And we just went down a rabbit hole of uh, there were responses to that, like people like agreeing. There's a lot of people that love Home Alone 3 and the character of Alex and this song. Yeah. There's a subculture. I mean, in the internet, I guess you can find any subculture that you want, like any niche. But people really, really angry, even years later, that you can't get the unedited version of the song officially. You know... I think if you deprive people of something, like even if it isn't a good thing, then they suddenly have like FOMO. And it's like, why can't I get this thing? Like, this is a song that I heard. Why can't, why isn't it on iTunes? Why is it only on my VHS copy of Home Alone? It was kind of driving me crazy too, because I, I found the lyrics to the song. And clearly the lyrics are, are you, if you're ready to see hell, which I love the idea of this little kid saying, are you ready to see hell? And finally, thank God for this uh, this person who went to the time <laughs> to, to make this uh, unadulterated version. We do also have to talk about, there's a scene at the end of the movie, the first time we watched this, you were upset about it. And then the second time we watched this today, you were really into it. And it's where the parrot at the very end of the movie sets a fire and blows up the lead bad guy. You know, it was a little bit softened by the fact that you see the bad... You see all the bad guys at the end getting mug shots and they all have chicken pox, which, you know, whatever. It's a dumb joke. But I wish they hadn't established that he survived this. Yeah. Imagine having on your gravestone, he was hiding in an igloo and then a parrot flew in with a match in its mouth and was about to light all these fireworks to send him to hell. Yeah. As cartoon boyfriend would, would he was he was going to have him see hell basically. Yeah. And then he tries to bribe him with a cracker, which is something that Alex did earlier. And the parrot um, says double or nothing, which is not how you use that expression. It doesn't matter. It's parrot. <laughs> but uh, but Alex luckily had a second cracker because you're not buying off this parrot cheap. If he wants to blow you up, you need two crackers to pay him off. Yeah. Imagine if your gravestone said, I was hiding in an igloo from the police. Then a parrot flew in with a match and I didn't have a second <laughs> cracker to, to bribe him. So he, I got blown up by a parrot. Wait, I think I want to ask... Why are people describing how they died on their gravestones? <laughs> I don't know. The obituary. Okay. We're in a cartoon uh, world where you're... <laughs> but I think you were upset about the use of that phrase, but you were also very upset by the parrot being, like, knowing how to light a match and then setting a bomb. I mean, this is the power of this movie. Whereas, two, I get angrier each time I see it. Next time I see it, I think when I'm going to I'm already on the precipice of blaming it for Donald Trump being our president <laughs> and for killing thousands of people with his slow COVID-19 response. I'm already blaming Home Alone 2. I'm like, oh, no, I'm on the cusp of blaming Home Alone 2 for all of that because I need somewhere to concentrate all that rage that I'm feeling right now. But conversely, with three, it might again be a Stockholm syndrome thing where it just like much like the cartoon boyfriend song it's just like the more exposure i have to it yeah. the more i'm just like yeah this is this is how this is good what's happening i suddenly have this concern that i'm going to come downstairs hearing some weird sounds in the middle of the night and it's going to be you watching home alone three just nodding along and singing that song well let's see where we we land on her is there anything else to say about this movie i don't 
don't think so. Okay, well, let's see where yeah. we land on uh, uh, our, our assessments. We should okay. go movie by movie. All right, Sean. So I think we need to start with the first one. Do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? Oh, you buy the first Home Alone. Home Alone is a classic. There's a reason it's a Christmas staple. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, like, so much has been said about it that there really isn't much for us to say. Um, I don't know. How, how do you feel about Home Alone? I think it's a buy it. I think it's charming. It's fun. The music is great. The The artistry of the film, the film just looks great. It It's so memorable. Um, and then the performance by Macaulay Culkin is just unforgettable. So then we go on to the second film. Now, this is tougher than I, I, I made it sound because I really am between rent it and tape over it. For me, the question is, does the hotel stuff with Tim Curry, which I think is like pretty iconic. Yeah. Like, does that stuff lift this up out of a tape over it? I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think kind of talking it through with you made me realize, I just don't like this movie. It's a wow. tape over it. Wow. I, I know we're going to get some angry uh, uh, emails at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. But I have to be honest, like, man, it's a tape over it for me. I'm really shocked. Okay. Well, I will rent it. I think that's fair. I think it's totally worth watching. I think you buy the first movie because that's the one that you would come back to again and again. The second one is fun to watch once in a while when you haven't seen the first one recently. It's got some fun scenes in it. It's pretty cute. But, you know, of a film franchise like this, you really only need to own one. So that's where it's a rent it for me. So then the third one. Oh, man. Uh, this is, this is, again, I'm between rent it and tape over it. I, I'm going in, I was so sure. First is buy it. Second is rent it. Third is tape over it. And I'm really not that sure because I have to give this movie credit. I was entertained throughout. Is it a good movie? No. It's uh, not. It's a bad movie. <laughs> it's genuinely not good. I mean, on, in, I mean, like just in terms of like, production just like general quality the second movie is better yeah but personally i think this is a rent it i think that i Jeez. i think that i i don't know it won me over i appreciated that, that it was not a clone of the first movie i think okay. if i'd gone if if two didn't exist it would be a tape over it for me but i think seeing these movies in order i was so depressed after the second movie and and the third one just like lifted me back up, okay. like it just I I appreciate how different it is, how weird it is. Is it something that I'm going to revisit a lot? No, but um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by Home Alone three. Okay, how did you feel? I uh, I think it's a tape over it. I don't think it's very good. I grew up with it. I watched it a lot as a kid. I think it's fun for kids. It's not that great for adults. And as an adult now, it's not one that, you know, I necessarily have a lot of affection for. Watching it and seeing those little weird action movie trappings and stuff, I see why I enjoyed it as a kid. We were watching the same movie, right? Like, you yeah. saw him blown up by a parrot in an igloo, and that's a tape over it? <laughs> I will say that that particular scene might be a rent it, but... The rest of the movie. Little ScarJo didn't win you over? No, she was she sucked. <laughs> she 
she's a cheater. Yeah, well, audiences definitely agreed with you because it made $79 million worldwide. Didn't even uh, make back its budget of $32 million domestically. It only made 30 yeah, you know, I don't know. I Are you rethinking? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm sticking with my rent okay, it. Okay. I, I will go to the mat for this movie and for that great cartoon boyfriend song. Uh, <laughs> with your favorite, with your favorite comment by Daniel Lee. I hope he finds I, this I hope, yeah. Daniel Lee, you're not alone. Like, I agree. The bad guys ended up seeing hell just as the song foreshadowed. So, Sean, what are we watching next time? Well, we are having a very special guest on the show next episode. My cousin, Paul Fisher. One of our biggest fans. He's a he's our, our probably like one of our most loyal fans, if not our number one Which makes diehard me, fan. Every time we go a long time between episodes, I feel really sad, especially because it means that we're not going to hear from Paul for a while. Paul checks in with us after each episode and weighs in, and I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I, we, we reached out to Paul because he, he's uh, we already have this episode on deck. Uh, um, we asked him what movie like choose a movie and we will find the vhs tape because he was visiting from the east coast and he said of all the movies he could watch on the show the one that he wanted to talk about was toys starring robin williams which i had just the faintest memory of watching i had never seen it joan cusack's in it ll cool j is in it um this is an episode you're gonna want to check out (laughs) I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also contact us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and review on your podcast app. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>